Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. I'm Wanda Wallace, and welcome to the Out of the Comfort Zone. Today, I always say my shows are exciting, but today I'm particularly excited about this topic. Now, as I've said on a number of occasions, I know that when two people have a level of trust, really good things start to happen. They tend to speak more frequently. The conversation feels more, quote, unquote, honest. There's less fear and intimidation. There's less concern about saying what you really think. And each person will describe the other person as, quote, more authentic. Yet all of those honest, authentic, trusting are judgments. It's my opinion that I can trust you. It's not a logical process, even though I may be, I feel like it's logical. That is until something goes wrong. Sometimes, though, the clues were there all along. So if you think about it, what is it that we pay attention to in using to create judgments of whether someone's authentic or honest or so forth? Now, this is particularly important in a context of a corporate culture. If you think about creating a culture or creating a high-performing team or creating an inclusive environment or creating a meritocracy, then those judgments are kind of paramount. And they're going to affect everything we do from promotions and salaries and asking for opportunities and finding mentors and so on. And I suspect at the end of the day, they actually improve team performance and job satisfaction. And who knows what else? Well, my guest today has been measuring, and by measuring, I mean physically measuring interactions among people for a long time, and he finds that there are particular cues, what he calls honest signals that are the key to influence and salary negotiation and even dating, just to name a few. So my guest is Professor Alex Sandy Pentland. Alex, or Sandy rather, directs MIT's Connection Science, and he previously helped create and direct the MIT Media Lab. He's one of the most cited scientists in the world, and Forbes has declared him as one of the seven most powerful data scientists in the world. I think you're going to find out why in just a minute. He's a founding member of advisory boards for the UN Secretary General, for Google, for AT&T, Nissan, and he's a serial entrepreneur who's co-founded more than a dozen companies. Sandy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. I look forward to an honest and uh, trusting discussion. Absolutely. Only you can't see the clues. You just have to listen to my voice. Uh, but so, that's part of the thing, is, is that seeing the clues isn't necessary. Listening for them probably is a better idea. Oh, interesting. Okay. Before we get into what these clues are, why did you start this work at measuring the signals that were happening between people? What was the problem you were trying to solve? Well, uh, you know, I got into all of this stuff with, you know, image recognition and speech recognition, like many people did uh, back before there were cell phones and stuff like that. Um, But I also did something that was a little off base for a scientist, which is I set up a series of laboratories in India um, to help people think about um, 
technology that would help the common citizen who's quite poor in India. And I had a board of directors that had all these famous and rich people uh, uh, to help me do it. And the board of directors and myself were terrible. We were just horrible. And the the problem was is there was sort of too much uh, ego, too much charisma, too much something in that room when everybody was there. And it got in the way of thinking logically and doing things that made common sense even. And the experience made me ask, what was it that was causing a bunch of highly talented, intelligent people who were dedicated to act so stupidly? And uh, so I began measuring things. So that's not as crazy as it sounds, because I've always done sort of sensors for vision and speech and, you know, microphones and cameras and stuff. But when I started measuring people, I discovered that there's a whole other domain of communication in addition to the one we normally think of, which is words. And it's not just, you know, emotion recognition. People talk about that. Um it's a it's a sort of signaling that people do. And the interesting thing is that this signaling is actually a very old channel of communication that we're hardly aware of anymore. Uh, but you see it in animals. You see it in apes. It's, it's how social animals coordinate with each other. They signal. They don't have language. And we do exactly the same sorts of things that animals do. But because it's so old... We are no longer very conscious of it at all. I think that's fascinating. Sir, I mean, I have certainly worked with a number of large animals, like horses, for example, and I contend that there is a whole other level of communication that exists between horses and riders and horses, if you're doing it well, that signals what it is you want that person, that animal to do. And it's, there's something about it. It's not pure emotions. It's not purely chemical. It's some other kind of signaling. And that's what you've been researching and studying. So you've called these honest signals. Why honest? Well, honest signals is a sort of technical term. It means signals that you give that are a little bit different, difficult to fake. So with words, it's pretty easy to lie. Um, and emotions are hard to read, and it's hard to know what people are going to do as a as a function of any particular uh, emotion. But these are things that are built into our biology that are easy to read and hard to fake. And I'll give you an example. When you become excited or scared, you get nervous energy. This is your autonomic nervous system, your fight or flight. And if you're actually scared... It's very hard to sit still. You tend to talk faster. You tend to be a little nervous in how you move. You, you move more rapidly. Um, you're not even conscious of it, but someone watching you can see it. And so you have a hard time hiding it. The other person can see it. I can give you sort of a funny example. We, we did an experiment with uh, semi-pro poker players, so people who know about this thing that they call a tell. So when, when novices in poker are excited, they begin to be more talkative and they fidget more. So pros calm themselves down deliberately when they get a good hand. But it's very difficult to call you, calm yourself down 
exactly the right amount. In fact, what pros do is they overcompensate. And so when we were doing this experiment, we had, you know, cameras and microphones aimed at these people. And we could tell when they had a good hand because they got too quiet. So <laughs> the newbies get all excited. The, the experts try to compensate, but they overcompensate. And as a consequence, they're just as readable as the newbies. Okay, now you so that's an example of an honest signal where you get really excited. There's this nervous energy, this excitement. You said at the beginning that you can hear it almost as much as you can see it. So how do you hear that in someone's voice, that excited or scared? Well, what we've done is we've done things where we've compared video imagery to the audio. We've even put little accelerometers on people to see how they move. And what we find is that it's all redundant. The stuff that you see in people's head motions and body, you can also hear in their tone of voice. And um, you can see in, in the way they move. And that makes a certain amount of sense. If you were evolution and you were trying okay. to make a group of animals coordinate, you would try to have redundant signals because you maybe have to mm -hmm. operate in the evening when the light's not so good or in the forest where the visibility is low. And so the signals that we make with our our head, our hands, the things we do with our voices are redundant with each other. Um, and actually, when you're using your eyes on someone, it's, it's distracting because there's also these little facial expressions and there's a lot of uh, other things that actually distract you away from the signaling that's going on. It's much better to actually sort of close your eyes and just listen to it and say, is this person excited? Is this person um, reacting to the, what I say in a way where, you know, my energy is reflected in them? Does the way that they uh, make little sounds, like everybody makes these little sounds like, hmm, really? Ah. Are they doing those sort of little sounds or are they dead quiet? So, so actually, it sometimes helps to close your eyes <laughs> and, and just listen to it. All right. All right. I can see that one. All right. So these are signals that we can't fake. They're there. They're a very old system. Um, you believe that, well, they show up in large, in primates and in social animals as a way of coordinating among the group. They have an impact on your ability to play poker, among other things. I love that story. Um, so honest, because you can't fake them. You talked about one, which is this notion of the nervous energy, that we're excited, that we're scared, and that it's hard to sit still, that you can hear it in the voice as well as see it in the body and the eye movements. What are the other signals that you found? Well, another powerful one is mimicry. So if you sit close to somebody and... Uh, you nod your head, which is a sort of way of saying, oh, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm listening to you. You'll see that the other person is much more likely to nod their head, too. Uh, if you change, shift your body, they're more likely to shift their body. And it's, it's a sign that the other person is interpreting and paying attention to what you're saying. It doesn't mean they agree necessarily. But it is something that's highly correlated with trust. So, for instance, a friend of mine did an experiment where he had a little computer-animated character that was trying to convince you to do something. And in one condition, he had a hidden camera watch you while you did, while you listened to this thing. And if you moved your head, then the computer thing would move its head, too. 
So it was mimicking you. What's amazing about it is that people didn't notice this because it happens to humans all the time. We mimic each other. But when the computer did that, the computer was 30% more at convincing the people uh, to do the thing that it wanted them to do, to you know, essentially to, to buy things. And they were rated much more trustworthy, much more empathetic. So here you're taking this, this image on a screen, and by making it copy the person, it gets rated much more trustworthy and is much more effective. So that's a powerful signal. Um, so do you want to go to the you, other signals? Or? No, I do, but I want to just hang on for this mimicry for a second because yeah. this is an incredible thing. This notion that I'm just sitting across from somebody or on the phone with them and I'm sort of mimicking what they're doing. I see in my voice, I'm echoing back what they've said, I'm nodding my head, I'm reflecting, in effect, exactly what's going on. I'm going to increase my chance to influence them and I'm going to increase the amount they're going to trust me. Can I overdo it? Well, you can certainly overdo it. If you do it so much that people notice it, then they feel weird and and it, they can begin to compensate against it. But it's amazing how how difficult it is for people to notice it. So it is a, it is a strategy. Uh, when you're talking to someone, what you want to do is you want to have a little more body language than normal. And and if you can sort of do a little bit of that conscious. Sort of they nod their head, you nod your head, they shift their body, you shift it. Don't do it big time, but do a little bit of it. It actually really works. Um, humans are, are not as smart and deep as we like to think <laughs> we are. We're, we, we take these signals and we sort of take them pretty much at face value. I love that one. So there's one is this activity, this excited energy, which could be scared or it could be excited about it. Then I've got the mimicry. So I'm just reflecting what the person, uh, my counterpart is doing, nodding my head with them, shifting my body with them, leaning in or leaning back if they do the same. Those are two signals. What's a third signal? So a third signal is what I call consistency. It's, it's when people are smooth. So you know, if you watch a ballerina, they move very differently than like I would. Okay, uh, they they just show that they're very fluid in how they do it. Same is true of of sports people who are really professional. The same is true of people who are expert in an area. They know how to speak about it. They know how to. Um, Put the words together, choose the right words. So the speech comes out very fluid and, and consistent. And you can measure that. There, the pauses are more uh, regular, they're smaller, the word choice is a little more exotic. And, and people hear that, and when they hear it, um, they unconsciously think that this person is expert, that this person really is able to... Um, to, to know about it. And it, it's, it's true because if you um, have that sort of expertise, it takes a lot of practice to actually be able to do that, you know, the 10,000 hours. So when you hear someone is very expert at expressing themselves, um, you can take it as a signal that they've invested time in that subject. And probably they are expert in a way. doesn't mean they're always correct but but they've definitely invested in in knowing about it 
certainly says a lot about why we put so much emphasis on communication, thoughtfulness and communication, prepared for what you're going to say, putting your pauses in the right place, your words of emphasis in the right place. I mean, you, you can begin to see why that's such a powerful signal and why you'd have to work at it so much to be effective. All right. So Let me tell you a little story, if that's okay. Yeah, please. Right? So, so we, we did an experiment where we had mid-career people uh, here at MIT who were getting ready to graduate, and they had to talk about what they were going to do with their lives after they graduated. So it was really like a business plan that they were preparing. This is what I'm going to do, and this is what. And then they gave little three-minute talks to everybody, all the other people who are in this this program, and, and they got rated. And it turns out that without knowing anything about the person or what they were expert in or what they were even talking about, you could predict the people's ratings of their pitch. And basically what they were doing is if the person sounded excited and they sounded expert, had this sort of fluid delivery, they were rated very highly, independent of the content. Uh, and that's really a key example of this sort of signaling. This is that I'm going to rate a business plan based on how the person delivers it rather than on the content. And yes, that's what humans do. I have watched on a number of occasions CEOs of some large companies meeting an audience sort of for the first time. They might know one or two people in the audience, but much of the audience will be new to them. And I'm always stunned frequently how rapidly they suss out the audience and sort of get to the nub of what that person was really about. Now, I don't know that that means that they have more emotional intelligence or more IQ than anybody else. What you're convincing me they're doing is they're really good at reading these kind of signals. Yeah, I think that's that's right. People aren't very good at reading emotion. Uh, IQ seems to have very little to do about it. But but this notion of how people react to you for even every little thing when you say hello, how do they come back? Do they come back promptly and positively? Do they sound a little hesitant? That sort of thing. And those are the things that are this fourth type of signal that I call influence. It's a question of who's driving the conversation? How are they driving it? And it has to do with very small differences in timing, in the sort of energy that you deliver, and the response that the person brings back to it. Um, and and it can be quite amazing uh, the what you can read from this and uh, also how people who are good at it can really manipulate it. And a lot of the things that you see of these people who are expert communicators are really good at reading it and forcing a different sort of reaction from other people by essentially verbally pushing them a little bit. You know, you, you cut off one thing, just the, the sentence just a little bit. You don't leave a pause there. You you push them to sort of say something, those sorts of things. And, and they're very... They can be very good at it. It's not always good, though. So, for instance, we did a large-scale experiment recently where we looked at mid-career people here at MIT uh, working in teams, and there were men and women in the teams. And what we found was the women all were complaining that they weren't getting the airtime that the men were. So they thought the men were just speaking too much. Right? It turns out when you objectively measure it, that's not true at all. 
Um, what turned out was that the style of interruption that the women had was different than what the men does. So um, men didn't interrupt women any more than women interrupted men, but the way they did it was different. And as a consequence, there was this sense of who was driving the conversation that stayed with the men, and the women felt like they were not part of holding the floor and driving the conversation, even though they were speaking as much as other people. Boy, I hear this comment a lot. This is an important piece, Sandy. So uh, most of the women that I work with will say that they feel like they're not listened to, that somebody's always talking over them or claiming credit for the idea that they had five minutes ago. And what you're saying is it's not that women interrupt more frequently or less frequently than men, and it's not that women speak less than men. It's that the style of interruption is different. So can you give me an example of what you mean by that? Well, so the things that we measure, um, women treat women differently than men treat men. Women uh, won't interrupt other women very much, so that's one sort of difference. I'm not quite sure what that means, but there we are. I think it's solidarity among among the women. Um, uh, the women's interruptions tend to be more positive. It's like, oh, really? Tell me more? Mm? Things like that. Um, the men's interruptions are not quite as positive. So there's a, uh, uh, a difference that's there. But it's sort of subtle. Uh, on the other hand, when you look at the timing between things, or like if I, if I interrupt you, what is the timing associated with it? There is this sense that the man is driving the conversation. So they tend to, to be a little sharper in how they do it in terms of time. Um, and they hold the floor a little better when they do that so that they'll say a little bit longer in their interruption. So, you know, we don't fully understand this, but it it is ubiquitous. Every culture uh, that we've looked at, you see this difference in this holding the floor behavior, and it's reflected in this signaling and interruption structure in very subtle ways. And so that's something we're actively working on is try to understand it and give feedback to people to sort of disrupt it. It's interesting. And it would be fascinating as your research goes on to figure out if we can. You said these were honest signals. So I'm doubtful that we can teach people to do it differently. But certainly being aware of it would make a difference. It reminds me, Sandy, um, early in my days of doing some work around gender differences. I remember getting some of my male colleagues to try to coach me on how they signal to another man that they'd had enough and stop and we weren't going to weren't going to carry on this debate anymore and they missed everything about what you're describing to me they got the body language in terms of the way you lean in a little bit but completely missed this whole notion of the interruptions or the way you cut somebody off or how you drive the conversation in a way and I suspect that's a lot of how we signal assertiveness if you would um, in the workplace yeah I, I I think you're right there and it gives um, 
sort of emphasizes the unconscious nature of this and also sort of the ancient nature of it. Because it's not something that you do consciously. It's something that's this sort of stylistic thing that's like air to you. You don't even know you're doing it. But yet it has these rather major effects. All right. Okay, so for everybody I've ever coached, particularly people who are not kind of having the impact they wanted to have in the room, their boss will say to me as a coach, that person needs to learn to read the room better. Now, whatever the heck they mean by read the room, we could all debate. But it strikes me that what you're talking about, paying attention to these signals, is a way of reading the room. Do you think that's an accurate description? Yeah, I think I think it is. I mean, you know, there are a few observations that are worth, you know, considering. One is that in a high-stakes negotiation, uh, a good negotiator brings along somebody who simply watches the room, sits behind them usually, um, and will pass them little notes about, you know, so-and-so is fidgeting, so-and-so is. So what they're doing is, is they're trying to read the signaling behavior because it's very different, difficult to have the sort of mental capacity to think about the content and the words while at the same time paying attention to the signaling. So having somebody who's your, your uh, signaling reader behind you that sort of alerts you to things that are unusual is one of the things that people people do in high, high-end sort of negotiations and discussions. The second thing to sort of reflect on is that almost every uh, high-end negotiation, substantial negotiation that I've been part of or, or business deal that gets signed includes a meal almost everywhere in the world. So, you know, you'll have a dinner with the guys the night before or lunch afterwards or something like that. And, yes, we eat frequently, but there's no objective reason, normally the way we think about it, for a meal to be part of the tradition. But what the meal lets you do is it lets you read the signaling of the person in a completely different situation. You can see how generous they are, how much they think about others, how much of a glutton they are, all sorts of things um, that come out at a meal. And so somehow we've built this notion of having meals together as part of high-end business deals. Interesting. So it's not just social graces. We're there at the meal to understand something about the other signaling behavior. What an interesting idea. It makes sense to me. There's a lot of cultures that have this notion of I can't, don't know if I can trust you until I've sat down at a meal with you, that we'll do the meal before we even begin the negotiation. Now mm-hmm. I know something about why. That's fascinating. All right. Sandy, we're going to take a break um, at this point. When I come back, I want to talk about sort of how all these signals kind of fit together for things like negotiating salary. You've done some interesting studies on that one, and people are certainly keen to hear it. So we'll do that when we come back. My guest today is Sandy Pentland, and Sandy um, currently, well, does a whole bunch of things. I think the best quote is, one of the seven most powerful data scientists in the world, according to Forbes. We'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. 
Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. If you are interested in the business of rental equipment, be sure to check out Rental Equip Talk Radio with host Donald Charbonnet. We talk to some of the top names in the rental industry, as well as cover topics that include safety, training, fleet management, legal issues, and more. We'll also cover the history and future of the rental equipment industry. Rental Equip Talk Radio can be heard live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Business Channel, and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Sandy Pentland, and Sandy is at MIT, currently directing Connection Science. He's done a whole host of things, including founding member of advisory boards for the U.N. Secretary General, Google, AT&T, Nissan, and he's a serial entrepreneur who's co-founded over a dozen companies. I said at the break, he's also named by Forbes as one of the seven most powerful data scientists in the world. Sandy has spent a lot of time measuring a second, we might say third, channel of communication, apart from the words and the emotions, looking at the signals that happen between humans. Well, actually, we happen between animals that are social, as a way of coordinating social activity. There are four key uh, types of signals. One is activity, that kind of excitedness movement in your body, nervous energy. Two is mimicry, kind of nodding my head, shifting my body in reflection for what my counterparty is doing. Three is consistency, which is sort of a smoothness and fluidity in the speech. And fourth is influence, having to do with how you're driving the conversation, the timing, the energy, the responses, and it turns out you can manipulate that and have a sense of driving the conversation. All right, so if those are the four signals, Sandy, I'm interested, you've done a bunch of research in how the four signals combine to signal things like leadership or team play or success on salary negotiation. So give us a kind of little, what do you know about salaries? out of all of this work, salary negotiations? Well, um, so we've done 
experiments where we've looked at people negotiating salary uh, and find that sort of how you interact with the person uh, is at least as important as what you say. So it's a little bit different than the normal phrase. The phrase is what you say, how you say it is more important than what you say. That's not actually quite true. It's how you interact with the person. So when they come at you with something that's a very uh, firm, uh, coherent sentence, so that's like they sound like they really mean it and they've really thought about it, how do you react to that? What do you respond to when they uh, interrupt a little thing, when they laugh a little bit, or when they nod their head? How do you respond to that? And it turns out that, for instance, when we looked at people doing uh, negotiations for salary, so they were practicing, but their grade depended on it, and they got a little prize and stuff. Uh, when they were, when we looked at that, we could predict um, – the salary that people would negotiate to within about a thousand dollars without listening to the words. And it just had to do with who was in charge of the conversation at what time, who mimicked the other person, who sounded really determined and in, in response to what. So it was like a dance. And the people who could dance well, you know, so this, this back and forth between people, uh, the people who responded in the right way um, were the people who got the better salary. And the sort of principle of the dance was, you know, you're going to be insistent on what you want, but first and foremost, you're part of the team. So you're, 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 you know, mimicking the person, responding to mimicry. You are excited when they're excited. Um, you don't cut them off. You're not driving, except when it comes to certain things that you have to insist on. And then you you are very consistent and, and fluid in how you present it, and there's no hesitation about it. So you're saying, hey, I'm here to help, but I have to have these things. And and that was the that was the winning strategy. I love that. I love that. So there's a fluidity in the language, a consistency, a willingness to be firm, but not firm in a way in which I'm interrupting and taking charge and driving the conversation, and all of this mimicking that's really the signals of your part of the team. Is that a reasonable yep. summary? Yep. Okay. And then and then you can see that also in. Um, in group activity. So in group activity, uh, what matters is everybody, you know, contributing in a more or less equal way. And so the signaling is what mediates that. It decides who's going to speak next and how long they're going to speak and so forth. So that dance gets to be a group dance where everybody has to lead a little bit and everybody has to dance with everybody else. And, and things like that are the ones that accomplish the two things you typically need to do in a group, which is get all the, the relevant information out on the table and get everybody to understand why that's an interesting thing to do and either vote it up or vote it down. Okay, I love this phrase that everyone needs to lead a little and everybody has to dance with everyone else. So how does this look in terms of signaling? Just kind of lay that out for me, what's happening. Well, in terms of the sort of basic thing, which is that um, everybody uh, talks about the same amount. They have about the same number of contributions. Uh, everybody 
follows everybody else. So it's not like I talk and then always you jump in. Other people jump in too, and I jump in after not just one person or two people, but I'm actually responding to lots of other people. So everybody feels like the whole group has, everybody in the group has responded and engaged with them, and they've responded and engaged with everybody else in the group. And in a case like that, people feel like they're actually can trust what's happening because they've been given a uh, a place at the table, as it were, right? They can get their ideas out. And if the group votes it up, great. If they vote it down, at least everybody's heard you and and had that interaction. So this plays out in terms of, you know, the the influence, you know, who who is pushing uh, when. So different people want to push. In terms of the consistency, you want to be able to indicate the things that you really believe are true by saying them in a way that indicates that you really are pretty certain about them. Uh, you want to indicate you're sort of voting it up or voting it down by the activity level, the energy you put uh, around it. And interestingly, you see this same sort of thing in apes. So if you look at ape troops and how they decide what direction to go, it's signaling behavior, and it's this pattern of interruption and energy that determines whether they go left or right. So describe, explain that to us. Well, so so the the observation about apes is is that you know some of the apes will want to go off in one direction and some of them will want to go in another, and they engage in this hooting behavior where they make noises and respond to each other, and um, over time, over you know a few seconds, you see that one one uh, side begins to dominate, and then. The apes go off in that direction. It's really much the same as bees. So this is, is very universal sort of behavior. Bees have famously have this, this waggle dance. So if a bee discovers something that's a, a good food source, a lot of pollen, they'll go back and they'll very excitedly uh, do this little dance that indicates how far the, the food is away, but also how good a food source it is. And then what happens is a couple bees then will go out and explore with the original bee, and they'll come back, and then they'll all dance. And eventually you reach a tipping point where everybody says, well, gosh, there's enough people voting for that food source that we should all go there, and they do. So the signaling then is basically how we get the group to drive towards consensus, to use a lovely phrase, or at least agreement here. And it's all around, it's coming around to this sense of consistency, fluidity, excitement. It's the same four signals in an interesting combination that gets everybody else to say, oh, this is a really good idea, let's go in that direction. Yep. Um, Sandy, I want to come back to something that you said because this is the part I'm particularly excited about. So every most companies I work with, I think most companies around the world, would argue that some diversity of perspective is really useful for generating ideas and driving performance and so on and so on and so on. Avoiding groupthink and a whole bunch of other things we would say are very good. At the same time, we tend to shut down people who have a different point of view. Um, They tend to silence themselves, and then it's easy to silence them further. Now, what you're talking about in terms of group activity, that the signaling, 
where that everybody talks about the same amount, everybody follows everyone else, meaning there's no set sequence. And that leaves a feeling of trust that you have a place in the table and that it's no one who's influencing, being pushing everybody else more consistently than any, uh, more often than anyone else. What you're describing is basically an inclusive culture. Now, how do you, what do you think about that one? Well, um, yeah, that's, that's fair. It's a culture with respect, and it's a culture where people are honestly interested in getting all the ideas out. So, um, you know, it's not always the thing you need to do, but that should be the that should be the stable. Sometimes you have to make a decision quickly, and we see that in a, a case like that, or if or if there's no clear consensus, then somebody needs to play the role of a leader and say, okay, well, look, you know, we're not getting anywhere here. We, how about this? Can everybody live with this? So somebody often needs to step up and, and that's a very different type of process. But again, even that process, people need to feel that the leader is, is acting in a way that's respectful of all the different ideas. So they can't obviously uh, be picking only on ideas of one person. They have to have listened to the other people, and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, it's definitely a culture thing. I think that a lot of the problems that organizations have come in two forms. One is people don't really believe that getting all the ideas out on the table is a good strategy. They've been told that there's all this sort of sneakiness that you can do about when you put out the idea and who you tell the idea to and so forth, that that's what the smart people do is, is they're, they're not honest players anymore. They're, they're get, trying to game the system. So he, he, there needs to be a, a belief in the organization that that sort of behavior is detectable, and it is from the statistics of this interaction, um, and that in the end it's not good for everybody. Uh, so it, that's an argument that organizations need to make. The second thing that gets in the way is um, organizations have a habit of making these org charts uh, that say who's supposed to talk to who. And of course, the consequence of that is is that you end up with silos where these people don't talk to those people because they're not supposed to, according to the org right. chart. And so what the organization has done is taken its most valuable resource and broken it up into little silos uh, that are unable to to figure out new ways of behavior. So you know, I like to tell people an org chart is a commitment by your organization to be stupid. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's let's get that org chart out there. Okay, um, so so it, it's a vision of an organization or an or understanding of an organization as an idea processing machine. You have to go through the ideas. You have to test them against other people to look for bugs, to look for consensus. And that testing process is also an educational process to get people familiar with it, to refine your own ideas. Um, and, and that's what organizations are meant to do. They're meant to combine ideas, testing them as they go, and turn them into consensus and, and consensus action. Uh, and in that process, 
the best thing you can do is have the best flow of ideas possible and the sort of most honest consensus process possible. The bad things are balkanization, uh, holding things back, uh, attempting to game the system. Okay. You were talking, let's talk about this notion of honesty, because I think there's an off, I guess, certainly get a lot from my coaching clients, uh, concerned about the politics, um, who's trying to game the system behind. And you said rightly so. I love this notion that organizations are idea processing machines, testing it, educating, combining ideas, creating consensus action. I think that's just a lovely description of what we Good. should be doing. Thank you. <laughs> but when um, the but when we feel like there's dishonesty in the system, that causes trouble because that keeps everybody from behaving in in ways that are conducive for this idea processing machine. Machine, you said it's possible to detect about dishonesty. So what does that look like? Well, what you see is you see. Um, this sort of honest behavior, right, is where everybody is engaging with everybody, everybody is contributing some ideas, uh, listening to the feedback, so they're modulating what they put forward based on, on what the feedback they got. And if people aren't modulating their input, if they're not uh, participating in equally ways, so in other words, they're biased towards one group rather than another, then it's clear that they're they're forming power groups. They're 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 holding back information, and those are the most common ways of trying to game the system. Is you know you and a couple of buddies are gonna you know sort of hold back, not give information to the other people, and then come forward as a group and try and you know dominate the discussion. If you yeah. if you watch the statistics of what happens, you know, who talks to who, who follows who, how often do they speak, when do they speak, it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly when you see these sorts of power groupings. Yeah. So is this stuff learnable, Sandy? Can we learn to we learn to spot it that I'm clear about with some little guidance and perhaps with some measurement? Can we learn to signal more honestly, I guess I wanna say? Yeah, I think I think it's it's quite doable. I mean, once you sort of are aware that there's another channel of communication that that is a meaningful thing, it's not just you know, oh yeah, it's emotions, but who pays attention to that? You know, we're here for business. This is this is an actual channel of communication that is used to signal things like interest or disbelief or um, expertise, and that you need to listen. To that in order to really interpret the words correctly. When people begin to sort of notice that and really understand it, uh, they begin watching conversations differently. And that leads to better collaborations. They get to be able to work together better. So just by watching it, I'm going to get better at collaboration. Is that the well, argument you get, here? You get more expertise. I mean, you get... you if. Once you realize that it's there and that it matters in this particular way, you will naturally begin watching it more and learning how to do it better. You'll be listening to yourself better. You'll be watching other people. And over time, you'll get very expert at it. Just without, you know, practicing it explicitly, just by paying attention and trying to incorporate that into your everyday actions. Fascinating. So just to repeat for people who are listening is 
it's a lot in here, but there are four honest signals I just want to re-summarize. One is this notion of mimicry, which I'm going to just mirror, in effect, what the other person across the room or on the phone is doing. Head nods, I'm going to nod my head, and so on. Move my body, they move their body, etc. So that's mimicry. The second one is activity level, that excited energy that I have moving around in an either scared or an excited way. The third is the consistency, the fluidity in my speech, putting in more expertise words, we use more exotic words, I think were your phrase there, and less pausing at more regular places. That sort of signals that I know what I'm talking about, I'm the expert here. And the last one is what you've called influence, the fourth one, which is about dominating It's a way of dominating the conversation or driving the conversation is a better word. And it has to do with the pauses, the way you interrupt, how you interrupt, how long you interrupt, and so on. And if Mm -hmm. I summarize what we've said here around creating a collaborative culture or an inclusive culture or an organization that does truly see itself as an idea processing machine, we have to create environments where people feel that everyone in the group has engaged with everyone. And we're going to signal that by the mimicry and the activity level and the um, interruptions, the influence, as well as everyone is contributing equally, meaning everyone is talking about the same amount of times, and that everybody responds to everyone else, meaning you respond to the feedback, not just what you were going to say regardless of whatever anybody said before that. And we have no signals of the power grouping, that is, of withholding information and then all weighing in at one time. Sounds right. How'd I do? Okay. It's amazing. It's amazing. For a moment, Sandy, speculate as if I'm a leader of the team. And I'm trying to get more of this honest signaling. So, yes, I'm going to pay attention to it for myself, and I'm going to pay attention to what's happening within the group. And I might even have an observer come in and watch it and give me some feedback because I can't always pay attention to the content as well as the signaling, as you said. Are there any tips you have for people driving to running teams to increase increase the amount of honest signaling? Well, um Honest signaling is sort of the medium by which you do things, but the stuff that really matters are ideas. So these are, and, and ideas aren't just like random ideas. These are ways of doing things, strategies, little micro strategies. You know, hey, if this happens and we do that, then maybe this will happen. That's an idea. It's got those three pieces. Functioning depends on those sorts of little idea slash strategy things. So it's the flow through of those that matters. So you have to make sure that the signaling is promoting good flow of ideas within the group, but you also have to reward ideas brought in from outside the group. This is one of the major problems that happens is groups get stuck in the same old ideas again and again. So you have to have a culture that rewards bringing in new ideas and testing them against everybody else. So, So the signaling is sort of how you do it, um, but what you do is you're trying to get in ideas, new ways of doing things from other parts of the organization, from other organizations, making sure that those new ideas are vetted correctly, and if they're good ones, that everybody is on board for moving forward. So, so it's an idea processing machine, and the gears, the little teeth on the gears are the signals. 
<laughs> I love that idea processing machine and the, the teeth and the gears are these signals that's come. That's fabulous, Sandy. I love this one. All right. I just want to repeat a couple of things that you said along the way, because I think they're really impactful for people to keep in mind. You were talking about an experiment where you had people negotiate a salary. And you said that you can predict the salary that that person is going to end up with within the $1,000, not listening to any words, but just watching the signals. That tells you something about how powerful these signals are. And then the second thing that really stuck with me is you were talking about people pitching what their business plan was, what they were going to do the rest of their life. And again, people vote for not listening to the words, but based on the signals. So I don't think there's any question listening to your conversations and your research about how powerful these signals are in having us reach conclusions, make decisions, decide who we trust, decide who's um, in charge, and a thousand other things we haven't even talked about. Now the question is becoming more aware of them, tuning into them. Exactly as, you said, exactly as you said, to become this idea processing machine where the teeth and the gears are the signals. Okay. Sandy, you got one minute. Any last bit of advice for anyone listening in? Well, I think that the um, idea of paying attention to the pattern of interaction along with the words is something that everybody should start doing and doing more of. And this vision of, of organizations as idea processing machines, as opposed to all the other sort of explanations, is, I think, another awareness that people should, should tend to cultivate. And if you do that, you're going to end up with something that's more innovative, you have more consensus and less conflict, and uh, your life will probably be a little more pleasant. So that's it. <laughs> Needless to say, I'm going to be more influential. I'm probably going to have better trust. I'm probably going to have people say I'm more authentic, that they'd like to follow me, and a zillion things that we haven't talked about along the way. Um, Sandy, as I knew it would be, absolutely, totally fascinating conversation. There are two books. One is called Honest Signals, and you have to remind me the social, you have to remind me the title of the second book, The Social Physics so Social Physics is the, the newer book, uh, and the earlier book is on a signal. So that's right. Okay, and tons of papers and research to back those up if you want to look them up. All right, so my guest again is Sandy Pentland. Sandy directs the MIT Connection Science. He's done a whole host of things at MIT as well as any number of places around the world, including advisory boards for the UN Secretary General, Google, AT&T, and Nissan. Sandy, without a doubt, what strikes me the most powerful about this one is this communication channel around signaling, things that we see in the animal kingdom from bees to apes to human beings and just how powerful that channel is in helping us reach conclusions do things in effect direct their activity as social animals so sandy thank you very much for the conversation my pleasure thank you for the conversation all right it's fabulous and join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone thank you for joining us today Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.